Hello and welcome to another episode of Lake Time, the Lake of the Woods Brewing Company podcast. I am one half of your hosts, the handsome and talented Matthew Kennedy. And I'm Lyndon Fraze. I'll let you fill in the blanks about uh, how you perceive me, just based on my voice. He has a mustache. I do have a mustache. Can you hear it? Can you hear it rustling against the microphone? That's why my voice sounds kind of fuzzy. Yeah, well, it's got a filter. It's a filter, yeah. You need a filter for that mouth of yours. Yeah, it's good for uh, when I try to suck it like a whale sucks in the, the what do you call it? The, ca- the, the plankton? The plankton, or that's what, that's what it's good for. Yeah. It's a filter. It's like, you know, I don't need a dust mask. So it'd be good if you're uh, sawing wood, yeah. you know? Yeah. Just like people used to do here in Kenora back in the day. You know, Lyndon, I would love to hear more about Kenora's history, actually. Well, you know what? This episode, we have Braden Murray, who is the a local historian and the, the educator at the museum, the Lake of the Woods Museum. So he's going to tell us some stories about the origins of the town and all the drama that has happened here involving prohibition. And the, there is one story that, that he told that some folks actually had a what was it a hydro pole or something and they busted down the uh the, the doors to knock of the, down the, the doors jail? of the manitoba so, jailhouse yeah so anyway many stories in this episode some and of kenora's dark history normally i just like to talk myself but in this case i like to actually listen yeah for once in your life for once in my life <laughs> he also tells us about the brewery history so that brings it all back to the lake the woods brewing company okay well should we get into it yes we should Let's wind our clocks back. Let's wind our clocks back on this episode of Lake Time. I was told you were a Firehouse fan. Is that true? That is true. That's That's a fact. Lake Time. Here we are. So are you paid to be here right now by the museum? Uh, for the next few minutes, yeah. So you're going to be drinking on the job? Yeah. Not shortly. the first time. Not the first time. Not the first time. And wow. actually, not the first time that the, uh, the brewery has been part of it. So we've, uh, we've done a couple events with them and, uh, yeah, it's been good. It's been a very great relationship for both parties, I think. So, so in your, um, you have a lot of knowledge of history. Do, does alcohol kind of ruin towns? Um, breweries are basically. The, the, the toxin in, in a community? Sure. Well, it depends who you ask. Um, for a long time, every town in Canada had its own brewery. Well, except for, uh, except for some places like, uh, you know, your Steinbacks and these sorts of things. Um, but it was very, very common. It was almost as common as having a bakery. So, hmm. you know, you have your, your bake your bread, then your liquid bread. So. Yeah. So the, I guess the good thing is it's a gathering spot for a community. You've got to have places where people gather. So, you know, co- you've got coffee shops, brewery. And now without that, you just have people meeting out in their uh, the, the back lane where they're opening and closing their garage door opener. And that's the only thing you <laughs> might wave as you wait for your garage door to open. <laughs> Other than that, you don't have contact with your neighbors. Yeah. It's really important to have the, the, the common spaces and the, um, it's not something we do a very good job of in Canada, unfortunately. Um, I think part and parcel because it's so cold six months of the year, but, uh, yeah, it's really important to have places where people can get together and, and meet up and, and enjoy each other's company. So it's a tradition that goes back a long way. Now to bring it back to you, Brayden, well, first off, you work for the museum, Lake of the Woods Museum. And Indeed. what 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 is your title at Lake of the Woods Museum? So my official title at the museum is the museum educator. Hmm. So you're educating the museum. 
<laughs> yeah, I tough uh, job. Yeah, I spend uh, I spend a lot of my time going after the schools. I spend a lot of my time going to Pinecrest and the senior center, and uh, having programs at the museum. And so, um, and and also just uh, just kind of doing the other museum work, um, curating exhibits, and uh, a big part of my job as well as making sure. That I take care of all the things that actually make the museum a museum. So all the stuff. So in the same way the librarian takes care of books, I take care of the of the stuff. Of the all apple graders stuff. And the, the swords and the dresses and all kinds of good stuff. Do you ever just wear an old dress and run around with a sword <laughs> when it's closed? <laughs> that would be that would be pretty awesome, I gotta say. But the uh the dresses, a lot of them we have are they're in pretty rough shape actually. Um, there's a, there's an issue that we're running into with actually a lot of fancy dresses were made of silk. Silk is great, except for eventually it starts to dissolve. So we're, we're in a situation where some of our fanciest dresses are actually starting to kind of fall apart. So, well, you don't want to wear ratty clothes either. You don't want to be seen in that. Right? <laughs> well, that's it. Absolutely. <laughs> you're and, a respectable guy. Well, that's the thing. I mean, if you know, you're going to put on a dress, it's going to be a nice one. Well, that, yeah, exactly. Right. You need to, uh, you need to make sure that, uh, you really come across well in the community. Yeah. And, um, I mean, that's absolutely true, you know? But I got to say, one of the things that uh, really we love it as a museum, people oftentimes will bring us in uh, antique or vintage clothing that they've purchased in Winnipeg or where else. And there's a, a gal that came in two summers ago and uh, she had this wedding dress and she was like, I'm going to wear this at my wedding. We we're like, that's really cool. And she was like, do you think you can tell me what it's from? And so we were looking at it and uh, myself and Lori, Lori's a director, um, between the two of us, we surmised that it's probably from about 1930. And it was in really good shape. And she actually ended up sending us pictures of what she looked like in the dress. And she looked amazing. And it's it's really cool. And she bought it for 7 bucks at a store down in Winnipeg. So that's That's, that's a cheap good. wedding dress. That's pretty good. You know, that's uh, as you know, I'm getting married in the summer and uh, if I could get my fiance to go for the $7 dress, you know, I'd be I'd be laughing all the way to the bank. Yeah. So. <laughs> I've got some friends in Falcon Lake and they Made a wedding ring out of a twenty, like uh, out of a quarter. Sure, it was like a just silver quarter. Yeah, hammered it into a ring shape. Mm-hmm. I, I actually have three friends who have now done that. Yeah, this, there you go. That's it's a very that's, unique look. And old change is, I mean, made of solid silver, right? So good to go. Like it's, uh, it's a pretty neat, pretty neat way of doing things. Was it a modern quarter? No. Okay. No, it's made of silver. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Now, obviously, we have a lot of questions about history in the museum, but sure. uh, to start with yourself, you're not from Kenora originally, are you? No, not originally. So I grew up just outside of Fredericton, New Brunswick, and uh, lived there for the first uh, first 22 years of my life. Went to the University of New Brunswick in Fredericton. Um, after I graduated, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do, um, being the one of the many history majors out there, kind of. Uh, wallowing away. So as one does, I spent some time in Europe and then came back and got a job at the, the Beaverbrook Art Gallery in Fredericton. And uh, throughout the year, I kind of was looking around and realized that, hey, this is a pretty good gig. I think I could make this museum thing work. And uh, I really, really quite enjoyed my time there. So I started looking at different schools um, kind of in, in uh, the wintertime and uh, looked at a couple different public history programs and museum programs here in Canada and uh, ended up at Western, where I did a, a master's in public history. And uh, actually in, in, uh, in the, the, the grad student lounge in August of uh, 2010 is where I did my first phone interview for the Lake of the Woods Museum. And I thought it went really well, and I was really excited. And um, then they got a hold of me a couple of days later and said they hired somebody else. <laughs> 
and so that was a drag. So I packed up my car and off I went. I went went back home. And uh, so I was sitting on my couch in Fredericton, and I got a call from the from the current director, from Lori, and uh, she said, "Are you still interested in interviewing for the job?" I said, "Yeah, absolutely." I guess the first person didn't work out, and uh, I was on a plane a couple of days later, and a few days after that, I I had the job. So, um, moving just some random place in northern Ontario. Well, what's amazing is that when uh, when I when I first did the interview, I was like, "I better read up on on what Kenora is all about." So I went to the Western Library. And I got out a book, and uh, I, was, I was kind of taking a look at it. I now know, in my my kind of current capacity, that that book is just full of lies and misinformation, and <laughs> it's really not very good to go on, right? So I I was going through it, and I was, uh, you know, there's a great picture of the Ken Rish, and I was like, oh, this is kind of a cool place, and and uh, you know, I looked at the uh, the mining history and the lumber history, and it was actually very similar to where I grew up in New Brunswick, so um, it actually kind of it it matches pretty well, kind of the the kind of people that live here and the kind of lifestyle, so. Yeah, that's uh, that's how it went. I packed up my car in November and drove around Lake Superior and ended up right here. So wow! So, so how much of the the local history was the draw? Like people have different things they kind of look for in a town they're going to move to. Not many people would open up a history textbook to see if if this is a good idea. How much of that is it would be important for you if you're moving somewhere that it's got a good history? I think it's very important, especially when you're going to try to tell the, and, um, one of the things I realized when I was, when I was in schools and, and just kind of in life in general, um, the really kind of, the really, um, kind of, we'll say sanitized version of history. It's not super interesting. People want to hear about the, the bullets and bombs and blood and guts and all sorts of good stuff. And, uh, you know, I didn't really realize the full extent of it until I moved here, but, you know, this is, uh, Kenora's in its former iteration, Rap Portage. I mean, it almost caused a, a, a national crisis. There was almost a civil war between Ontario and Manitoba. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really, it's a fascinating story and it's one that, that, uh, you know, I'd really love to kind of get out there. So that was a part of the draw for you then when you got to know more about Kenora's dark history? Yeah, it actually, it absolutely was. And it was one of the things that, uh, that I brought up in the interview that uh, I think there's a lot of really good meat on the, uh, meat on the bone, I guess we'll say here for, uh, to tell kind of the tales of, of, of Kenora. Um, uh, my brother had gone to school outside of Moose Jaw and, uh, I knew that, uh, I wasn't super keen on going to the prairies. It's a little too flat for my taste, but, uh, coming here, it's, it's, very similar, like I said, to New Brunswick and in uh, lifestyle and kind of the sort of people that are here. So, and the the really great stories you can tell, um, and sort of the the crossroads of North America uh, certainly is icing on the cake. Okay, well, should we uh, crack these beers and then get into that great story? Yes. Sure. So we're told that you're a fan of Firehouse Ale, which is the English Nut Brown flagship beer at the brew company is is that a fact that is absolutely right so this is your go-to what do you what do you like about firehouse do you think why is it your fave um i like how there's sort of a kind of a a a bold maltiness to it and sort of uh an underlying sweetness we'll say um it's good it's uh i'm a fan it's um there's a lot of different uh different beers out there and i like the ones that really kind of uh really hit you with flavors so Let's crack it open. All right. Oh, that's a good beer. Yeah. Well, it's good, and it's just kind of an aside. It's it's got really nice. Um, there's a nice kind of bitterness to it. Um, in kind of pre pre uh, prohibition Ontario, um, a lot of people drank German style beer, which is a really hoppy beer. And during prohibition, people got really used to 
getting uh, really sweet. You know, you have your, your bathtub hooch, these sorts of things. In order to make it really palatable, you put in fruit juice with sugar and all sorts of things. And so the palate for beer became people love sweet beer. Oh, and that's to mask bad taste, basically. Because if you if you can't make good beer, you make sweet beer. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So so the 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 kind of what people liked really changed, and people really like sweet. And that's also why you see vodka becoming very popular in the late thirties and forties as a mixer. And so this uh, this kind of craft beer revolution that we're in now, where we're getting back to beer with really good sort of hearty flavor, is a uh, it's awesome. It's great. And this is the way beer should be, quite frankly. Lake the Woods Brewing Company, in their branding, talk about how they've been the purveyors of fine ales since 1898, right? So what can you tell us? And I hope I'm getting that year right. No, that's right. <laughs> what can you tell us about the history of breweries in the Kenora area? Sure. Well, before, before we get to the brewery specifically, the kind of story of, of, of um, well, at that time, Kenora was called Rat Portage. And there was an absolute boom going on between about 1890 and about the beginning of World War One, And that boom was really based on, well, there was a few different things. There was an enormous flour mill in Kiwaden. Um There was lumber that was a huge concern. There were some seven lumber mills that were cutting ties for the twinning of the railway. And last but not least, there was gold. There was tons of gold all around Lake of the Woods, between Lake of the Woods, Rainy River, Rainy Lake, um, and basically beyond. And so uh, Rat Portage was the, the place where people who were mining or prospecting for gold would come to uh, get supplies and, and uh, buy and sell and, and bring their gold to be processed. So it was very much a boom. You went from a population of about 800 or so permanent residents in the 1880s to about 6,000 permanent residence at the beginning of World War One, So it was a huge boom. That's where a lot of the buildings were built. Um, rather, that's why a lot of the buildings were built kind of in the 1890s. You see down along Main Street, the Cornerstones, 1897, 1898. Well, as part of that kind of boom, that's when you start to see uh, local companies and local breweries starting up. You know, you have a situation where you can really make some serious money. So I, I looked into it a little bit. This uh, The fellow who started the original Lake of the Woods Brewery was a fellow named Abraham Kingdon. And he was from England. And he actually, believe it or not, he made his money as a printer in Madagascar. And where he mostly printed religious material. He actually was a Bible printer. And he moved, why did he move to Canada in the first place? Because his doctor said that he needed a fresh, clean air in a northern climate. Interesting prescription. Yeah. So. And so he would have taken a boat from Madagascar to, I don't know, Montreal or where would he have come in? Likely Montreal. Yeah. Could have been Halifax. Could have been Halifax, but yeah, could have been Montreal. Um, and then would have gotten on a train and traveled the two and a half days from Montreal to here. He and his wife and his five kids. And he was the main investor in the Lake of the Woods Brewery. The the original brewery was over on Lawrence's Lake, so pretty much actually on the exact site where the jail is now. Um, the provincial government bought the former brewery site to be the jail location, and so it was right there on Lawrence's Lake. And the original three beers, and uh, this is not a coincidence, the the main flagship beer was Sultana Lager. They also had Mikado beer, Mikado Lager. 
which was the name of another mine, the Mikado mine. And they had Regina Porter, which was named after the Regina mine. So the three main beers were named after local gold mines. And uh, they had capacity to make about 1,500 gallons at a time. And, uh, yeah, it was really quite a going concern. They, uh, it was a very, very high-tech building, apparently, from what I've read. And, uh, yeah, really, this was, uh, this was how Mr. Kingdom was going to make his money. So, And did he make money? Uh, he did not. He did not make <laughs> money, actually. Um, he, uh, he spent an awful lot of money getting the brewery built and then uh, was in an unfortunate situation where he didn't have a lot of cash flow after he spent all the money getting everything built. And he ended up having to sell the brewery to uh, a fellow named George Drury. Um, George Drury, for those uh, for those people who live in Kenora, if you've ever been to Drury Drive, that's who it's yep. named after. If you're from Winnipeg and you know the Redwood area, that's where the Redwood Brewery was. That was operated by E.L. Drury, Edward. That was George's brother. George moved here in 1883 and opened up a wholesale liquor business and a couple hotels. He was the one that built the uh, uh, built the Dalmore, the building that just burned down, uh, among others. And so he bought up, kind of essentially bought up the brewery in a fire sale in 1903. He got a, a really good deal on it. So, And did, was he able to make more of a success of it? He was massively successful. He nice. ended up becoming very wealthy. Um, part and parcel because his brother, uh, who owned the Redwood Brewery, he owned Lake the Woods Brewery. And between them, they owned wholesale liquor distribution basically from here to Winnipeg to Thunder Bay. And uh, they really had a, really had it locked down. So they were, they were the guys to talk to. So the Drury Boys. Hmm. And they have a very short street named after them. They do. Absolutely. <laughs> a suburban street. Absolutely. And it's kind of too bad because George did a lot of really good work here in town. He did a lot of really, um, you know, he was, uh, helped start the Rotary Club and he's helped start the, the Chamber of Commerce. And he was the first one to uh, get public funds for a motorboat dock here in town. He was the first guy to have a gas motorboat on Lake of the Woods. Um, he used to sponsor sports teams and, uh, you know, donate a parkland and he was really quite, quite a, a community booster. Um, and he was able to do that through, uh, through selling his beer and his wine and his liquor and again, did quite well. So it kind of proves what you were talking about when you joked about a brewery being bad for a town that it really has historically been very good. Yeah, Absolutely. It absolutely has. Um, you know, it's, uh, it employs local people who, um, spend money locally. The brewery, um, uh, spends a lot of money, uh, uh, sponsoring sports teams and, and all sorts of different things. So absolutely it's, uh, it's a net benefit, I would say. Um, yeah. I mean, in, in, in 1916, right before prohibition, there were 64 breweries in Ontario. Wow. And in 1927, right after Prohibition was lifted, there was 15. Um, so it really kind of, really kind of kicked the crap out of our local breweries, unfortunately. And we're just, the number seems low, even the high number, 64 in the giant province of Ontario. Well, you have to remember that Ontario is quite a bit fewer people then as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you uh, you get in a situation where uh, there's there's one here, there's a couple down in Port Arthur, Fort William, and then pretty basically the rest of the population lives in southern Ontario. Right. I mean, uh, I don't want to I don't want to besmirch uh, you know Geraldton and Marathon and those guys, but there wasn't a whole lot of whole lot going on back then. At that point. <laughs> um, 
don't know. Sorry, I, Marathon. I love you. You can smash Marathon. It's okay. Trash. Marathon's <laughs> the first place I ever had pierogies, believe it or not. Were they good? They were delicious. Okay. Well, Marathon's all right then. So I, uh, yeah, amazing. Good stuff. Now, um, what? how does the border dispute fit in with the liquor sales? Yeah, the, the, the border dispute is really, um, it kind of goes back all the way to the treaty that ended the American Revolution, actually, the Treaty of Paris. Um, so when the Americans and the British were, were kind of figuring out where the borders were going to be between British North America and, and the United States, they were using a big map called the Mitchell Map. And the Mitchell Map's great on the East Coast, but as you move inland, it uh, it's not great. It's not the best. And there's a lot of geographical features that just don't exist on the map. And so what the Mitchell map shows is the Mississippi River going basically all the way from where it ends at the the Gulf of Mexico all the way north to the Arctic Ocean. And the, yeah, the, so <laughs> nice. the, exactly. So that's obviously not what actually happens. Um, I wish. So, yeah, it's, it starts in Lake Itasca down in Minnesota, but, you know, they didn't know that at the time. So they... And the Red River gets close to Lake Itasca, right? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yep. But uh, so that may be a part of the confusion. It, it? Yeah, probably was. It probably was. Yeah. Um, but in any case, they, they said specifically that the, the border of British North America would go to the middle of uh, the Mississippi River. And that's where the, that's where the Western border would be. And that's great, except for that's a geographical feature that doesn't exist, which is fine until people start moving here kind of en masse in the late 1800s. You know, people have been living on Lake of the Woods for thousands of years. Um, but when you really start to see the kind of the, the Western migration of, of sort of uh, European Canadians coming uh, in the late 1800s, that's when kind of the rubber really meets the road as far as um, we need to have a proper border. Um so the Ontario government said, well, why don't we just take the treaty and say, uh, the Treaty of Paris and say, well, we'll, we'll use the, the, uh, the middle of the Mississippi River and then go straight north and that will be the border. So it'll be kind of in the spirit of the treaty and that'll be great. But the federal government and the Manitoba government said, well, we actually think that maybe we should have the border at the, the height of land that's just west of Thunder Bay just west of Port Arthur. So when you're driving down the highway, there's a sign on the side of the road that says all the water on this side of the sign goes to like uh, uh, the Mississippi and all the water on, on this side of the sign goes to um, kind of the uh, Lake Superior, uh, Lake Superior and, and the Hudson Bay kind of watershed. So there's a great kind of continental divide there, essentially. And that's where the feds and that's where Manitoba said that's where the border should be. So... Basically, from where the current border is all the way to right around Port Arthur was kind of disputed territory. And that was a big issue because there was a lot of money to be made here, gold mines, lumber, and building the railway. So it really came to a head kind of in 1879, 1880, when they're building the Continental Railway. And um, at the time, it wasn't really too, too much of an issue because there wasn't really many people living here. But they decided that this kind of area, this this area, Rat Portage, kind of Kenora as we know it now, would be one of the headquarters of the railway. So the the railway was being built, and the B section of the railway would basically be from here to to Winnipeg and then to Ignace, so kind of that section. And and Rat Portage would be the, the headquarters. And Ontario said, "Great, we'll send in uh, we'll send in a judge, and we'll send in a couple of police officers, and uh, we'll." We'll treat it like 
the province of Ontario. Well, Manitoba basically said the same thing. And so there's, there's quite, quite a divide here in town. There's a lot of people who, who wanted to be a municipality. They wanted to be able to collect taxes. They wanted to be able to, um, be able to do the, the things a municipality does. So they went to the province of Ontario and they said, Hey, we would like to form a town. And the province said, ah, you don't really have enough people and the people that you do have won't show up to a meeting. So if you try to form a municipality, it's not going to hold up in court. You need to get your act together. So Manitoba sweeps in and says, hey, you guys can be a Manitoba town if you want. And everyone says, hey, that's great. So in 1882, they become Rat Portage, Manitoba in the county of Varennes in the province of Manitoba. So, so I don't understand why this is disputed. I thought the Fed said that the border was at this continental divide. So who are the people that are saying, no, no, that's still Ontario over there? Well, that's the province of Ontario. Right, so they like the, the straight shot north of the Mississippi yep. as the border yep. because they want this territory. But the Manitobans are saying, and the Feds for some reason, yep. are saying, no, no, it's over here. Well, largely, to, to kind of explain that, you have to go back a little bit and talk about the, the personal rivalry between John A. Macdonald and Oliver Mowat. Oliver Mowat was the Prime Minister, or rather the Premier of Ontario, the Premier of Ontario, and um, John A. Macdonald was the Prime Minister. And they started out in the same law office as junior partners. They knew each other personally, and they hated each other because Oliver Mowat thought that provinces should be very powerful in the Canadian system. And John A. Macdonald, looking at the states and seeing the Civil War, thought, mm, if provinces get too powerful, that's a problem. So all the power should be with the federal government. So really, it's kind of a, a different view of, of kind of Canadian federalism. And at the time, the majority of people lived in either Ontario or Quebec. And the vast majority of English-speaking people lived in Ontario. So they had proportionally a lot more power than any of the other provinces. So when Ontario would would take the federal government to court or the federal government would take Ontario to court, it was kind of a clash of the titans. And it happened a lot in the 1870s and 1880s. Um, it happened quite a bit. So Ontario is basically asserting its right as, uh, as a province and the feds were saying, um, we disagree. So that's, that's where it comes from. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, and it just, it makes you realize how, how these, these borders only mean something if everyone agrees that that's where it is. Absolutely. Yeah. An imaginary line. It is. Yeah. And, and so it was literally down the middle of main street for a while. That is something that um, the shorter answer is no. Yeah. Um, the long answer is kind of. Um, so uh, one of the first things, one of the first things, one of the first exhibits I did when I when I moved here was called Sinner Saints and Spirits: The History of Liquor in Kenora, and uh, that's where we we partnered with the brewery for the first time. And uh, the that was one of the big things that people would come up with. Um, when they found out I was working at the museum, that was kind of the fact that people said, hey, I've got a fact for you. And they would say, uh, the provincial boundary was down the middle of Main Street. The boundary was on Hennepin Lane. That's what we just heard in the other room. Was it, oh, no, it was actually in Hennepin Lane. Yeah, exactly, right? Exactly. So you have one person say Main Street, then someone else correct them and say, actually, it was Hennepin Lane. Actually, it was neither. But the reason why that kind of idea, I think, why it persists is because the the Manitoba police had their kind of uh, their police station over basically where Boston Pizza is, 
and the Ontario police had their police station basically over where uh, the old armory building is, which is the former jail. So at one time, the Manitoba police were kind of down here, and the Ontario police were up on the hill. And when you look at Hennepin Lane, that's actually a pretty good that's a pretty good sort of intersection of town. Um, kind of not unlike, uh, like gangs, you know, gangs in a, in a, in a city neighborhood where it's like, you know, we, this is our turf. Yeah, exactly. We, this is our turf and that's their turf. And you know, the, the line down the middle, we, we just leave it at that. So I think that's where it might come from. Um, if you look at main street in 1882 and 1883, there wasn't really anything west of main street. So for one one group to have west of Main Street and one group to have east, one group would have everything and the other group would have nothing. Because <laughs> the water used to come right up to the edge of the buildings on Main Street, yeah. right? So you would have literally that strip of buildings and that's it. This was before the subway. This is before Veterans Drive. Um, the water so came all the way up to the buildings on Main Street. It did. Yeah, absolutely. So where the white tent is, where the white cap pavilion it's um, all water. Thistle Pavilion, all Wow, all what water. changed? They filled it in, didn't they? They did. Oh, they, absolutely they did. filled it in. And fairly recently, like in, in the 80s. There used to be along that back, along behind the buildings there, there used to be a bunch of boathouses. Mm -hmm. And in the 20s, they looked like these kind of glorious sort of amazing things. By the 1970s and 80s, they were pretty rough. They were looking pretty bad. So they, they did a... a, a they went and basically got rid of all the all the boathouses and filled it in and kind of really really kind of remade the harbor front the the green strip kind of around where husky the musky is that used to be the sidewalk a chain link fence and then the water and it was just like boom the water was right there so my boss over at the museum grew up on tunnel island and when she would walk to school over at what's now seven gens um she would walk on the sidewalk and there was just nothing on the other side so it was uh it was pretty dicey it looks a lot better now, I think, than what I used to. It's weird, yeah. My mother-in-law grew up right on Main Street, basically, and talked about like them playing on the boathouses and stuff when they were kids. And uh, it's crazy when you look at old photos versus what it's like now. It's it's a huge difference. Yeah. And there was like a social area too, wasn't it? Like the rowing club building or or something, or what was the building where they had dances and stuff? Yeah, so right right behind the um, what's now well the, the Bank of Nova Scotia building, the Scotia Bank, um, there was the rowing club, and so the rowing club in the summertime was built to be able to host visiting rowing teams. So there was uh, the clubhouse in the middle where they could have dances and kind of social get-togethers, and then there was rooms along the outside where people could stay, and then in the wintertime they would flood the whole building, and it was the curling rink. Wow. Yeah. Multi-purpose. It was. It's amazing how quickly you can forget what something used to look like. In the neighborhood that I have lived in in Winnipeg, there's been a lot of changes since I bought a house there. And some of them, some of the buildings that have now been torn down, I walked by every day. And then, you know, a day after they're gone, I'm like, oh, I can't even remember what was there. Sure. <laughs> yep. That's what your job's all about. It is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's something that... I've actually heard people say similar things about, uh, we just had a fire here at the Lila's block. And right now there's just a big, big hole where the building used to be. And I've heard similar things, people saying, you know, I walked by it and it's as if it's weird. It's mentally, it's as if it was never there. Yeah. Kind of like, it always looked like that. Yeah. I know the first day I drove by, I was like, whoa, weird. And now it's just like, yeah, there's the empty spot. Yeah. That's my, my brain accepts it now. Yeah. Now, um, so how did the border dispute 
end or where so where was the border actually or was it that it was an undetermined border really so it was undetermined yeah okay. so so the the whole kind of disputed area was where the current border is all the way to about port arthur so basically all mm-hmm. of northwestern ontario was up in the air yeah and um, so how did they finally move it to where it is well it, it things finally came to a head and this is where the liquor question comes in this is where kind of the the uh, the virus kind of dictated history in a way um at that time, one of the major ways that municipalities would get money was from liquor licenses. And when they were building the railway, they had an act called the Public Works Act, which meant that you couldn't sell any sort of liquor or possess weapons or do various other things within 10 miles of, of the track. And since they were building the track and it was still kind of an act of work, uh, the Public Works Act was enforced and you couldn't buy or sell liquor officially in town. Um, people still did. Um, but there was no way to sell licenses for it because it was against the law. So once the Public Works Act was lifted in the summer of 1883, both Ontario and Manitoba started selling licenses. And that worked okay for about a month. And there was actually on, on July 27th, 1883, there was what essentially amounts to a riot. There was a, a fellow who was selling on the Ontario liquor license. His name, last name was McCory was his name. And uh, the Manitoba police came and picked him up for selling an Ontario license. And they hauled him off to jail. And basically what happened is the other innkeepers and the other kind of Ontario supporters formed a mob. And they marched down to the Manitoba jail and they demanded that they let him go. And the Manitoba police said, uh, no, this is a police station. You guys need to go or else we're going to arrest you all. And so what they did is they they started fighting with the police officers and they pulled down a telegraph pole and they started using it as a battering ram to bash in the door. And this is a full on like Disney style pitchforks and torches mob. And so they're they're going down the street, they're yelling at the police, they're trying to bash down the door. And their perspective is that these police officers shouldn't have authority there. Hundred percent. So they're saying, This is Ontario, you Manitobans need to need to get out. And then Manitoba supporters show up. And so it's just kind of a general fight in the street. West Side um, story. It was very much. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, um, it got to the point where Ontario police, um, they wouldn't wear badges. They would wear a blue ribbon on their arm. So that way they could take it off really quickly. If somebody came by and they could sort of, um, blend in because after this, the Manitoba police poured in like 40 to 40 officers and dogs and the whole works. But in, in any case, in, in the, uh, in, in this, uh, July 27th night, they batter down the door, they get McCory, and they light the jail on fire. And wow. they beat up the constables and they run off into the night. And uh, it's essentially a national crisis. Um, at the time, John A. McDonald was on vacation and he was interrupted and uh, was basically told that he needs to help deal with the situation. Uh, the great Mountie uh, Sam Steele was told to mobilize the, the Northwest Mounted Police to come and they were going to basically come to town and arrest everyone. Um, and basically just put the town on lockdown. Um, it was a real, it was a real crisis. Um, it was really quite, quite a crisis. Um, both sides were, uh, really ready for a fight. And I think that's where the Henny Penn Lane thing comes in, where both sides realize it's better to just kind of stay on our side versus sort of, um, kind of picking a fight. But what if you were living on the other side, but your sympathies were with one or the other? Well, then that's really West Side Story. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> like, how, how did people choose sides? It, it's really, it's, it's funny. All the way back, there's, we have a, an invitation at, uh, at the museum for a Christmas dinner from 1896. And it was so bad 
that at this Christmas dinner in 1896, they had an Ontario table and a Manitoba table for people who supported one province or the other. So this, I mean, this people were still upset 15 years later. A nation divided. So they Absolutely. wanted to have Christmas dinner together, but they didn't want to sit at the same table. Yeah. So they had a, it was, it was at a, it was at the a local hotel and they invited about 50 or 60 people. And yeah, there were some people who still couldn't, couldn't deal with each other. They didn't want to and they weren't interested. So, so how, how do people pick sides in these situations? Well, I think it, I think it comes down to fundamentally what the people who are living here wanted was they just wanted kind of, uh, they wanted stability. And, uh, there was, there was a big event that, that really pushed that, that issue. Um, two big events actually. There was a, there was a big fire in November of 1883 where because the disputed territory uh, wasn't Manitoba, it wasn't Ontario, it was also both, and it at the same time wasn't. Insurance companies were not interested in insuring people in Rat Portage, and there was a big fire in 1883 in November, and essentially half the town burned down. It got so bad they were taking dynamite from the local dynamite factory and blowing up buildings all around the fire to form fire breaks. Um, it was devastating to the town and no one had insurance because no insurance company in the right mind would deal with a disputed area. So that was really bad. They were dynamiting buildings so that the fire wouldn't spread. They're blowing them up. They, on main street, there's who, who a, who's making these decisions. Someone was like, Hey, let's start blowing up buildings. Yeah. And I mean, people are like, sure. Yeah. Well, you know, you got to sacrifice a few to, to save the rest, I guess. Right. But this is quick thinking, right? Like fire moves rather quickly. So yeah. they had a little team meeting or someone just took it upon themselves to blow up someone else's building. And it could so to save the <laughs> it could be, yeah. To this save is quite the building. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Let's blow up yours well, one, before it gets to mine. One thing you'll notice on Main Street is all the buildings are made of stone and brick. And uh, the reason is because when they're rebuilt after the big fires, that's exactly why. Um, the building over on the corner, that what's now Tilly's Pharmacy, when it was built, it was Hose Hardware. And in 1902, um, there was a big fire at the Hilliard House, which is where the Ken Richards is now. And Jacob Hose lost his building in the 1883 fire. So when he rebuilt his building, he built it out of brick at about an extra 20% cost. And when the fire burned in 1902 across from his building, it was so hot it melted his windows, but it didn't burn down his store. So you can see where the brick kind of comes in handy. So they had this big fire in, in 1883. And the town comes together and they say, this is awful. We need to get this sorted out. Well, in the next month, right before they announce a deal, there's another fire where actually a lot of the rubble from the first fire burns as well. So it was just devastating to the town. There was, we have newspaper ads at the, at the university or at the museum rather, um, as far away as St. Louis and, uh, the New York Times and, uh, you know, right across saying Rat Portage is in dire straits. Um, this is a town that's been devastated by conflict and by fire, and they're taking up collections in churches in St. Louis for Rat Portage, Ontario, or Manitoba. Wow. Wow. And how did they characterize the dispute? Like, well, it sort of seems like someone that's in, I'm just imagining myself being a church-going American in St. Louis, uh, hearing about this place way north. Like, this is almost unimaginably far sure. back in the day, right? It's not like you could hop on an airplane as a regular person. Um, and they're hearing about this town that can't get along. Yeah. Well, the, they were willing to open their wallets for this. The the big thing was the fire. And I think that's something that everyone in the 1880s could, could recognize as being a serious issue and something that people understood was like, look, there's nothing you'd really do. It's kind of a fact of life, but when it does happen, it's up to everyone to sort of rally around and, and help each other out as well. This area was part of the catchment area of the Mississippi. 
And so um, you have, uh, obviously, you have to go a little bit south to get on the Mississippi, but it's kind of part of that whole catchment area, and so is, so is St. Louis. So the, the stories would kind of go all the way down the Mississippi, all the way down to the Gulf Coast. And how would this story travel? Generally by wire service. Generally, it would go to Winnipeg, and then it would kind of go up from there. Winnipeg at the time was a booming, booming city. Um, if there was a boom in Kenora between 1890 and, and, uh, and the First World War, Winnipeg was, was 20 times the boom. Um, it was the, the city of cities at the time. The um, trade mecca. It absolutely was, 100%. Um, so they were, when something happened in Winnipeg, people listened. And when Winnipeg said, hey, this is an important story, everyone said, oh, wow, this is an important story. So I think that's, that's part of it as well. Wow. So folks in St. Louis, they would have known about Winnipeg as being a, a great city to the north? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. A huge trading destination and um, one that was on par with Chicago for sure. Um, perhaps uh, certainly more important than, than your Calgary, Edmonton, and Vancouver at the time. Sorry, and, where? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> fine cities. Fine cities. Um, but yeah, I mean, Winnipeg was absolutely booming. It was the new West and it was, um, it was really, uh, it was a big spot. They have so, an Ikea now. They do. They do. <laughs> so, Fine. all right. So the grain was the cause of the, the Winnipeg boom. Why was yeah. Kenora booming? It was because of natural resources, natural resources, lumber. Um, there was a, there was a, a coming a little bit later, the, um, the lumber mills were a huge part of the growth here. Um, when they twin the tracks on the CP rail, they basically cut every, every railway tie here from here to the Rocky mountains. Excuse me. That's the problem with beer. Indeed. Um, <laughs> but they, they had the contract to cut the railway ties basically, like I said, from here to the Rocky mountains. So it was very, very much going concern. The Lake of the Woods milling company over in Kiwaitin, um, for a time during World War I, Kenora was the largest milling center in the British Empire, um, even larger than Montreal. Um, so between the Lake of the Woods Milling Company and the Maple Leaf Milling Company, which is over kind of where the wholesale club is now, um, they're making the order of uh, 13,000 tons a day. That's what they had capacity for. Um, so just a massive amount of flour milling as well. Um, they had the power from the Winnipeg River that the, um, the, the current from the Lake of the Woods, the Winnipeg River was able to run these kind of great factories, these great mills. And lastly, like I said, the gold, the gold rush. And this would have been the mechanical energy from the, from, or the kinetic energy from the river. This isn't hydroelectric, is it? Originally it was the, they were running turbines to run their mills and eventually it did go to electric. Yeah. Um, the, the city of Kenora, um, the, the first power was switched on in 1890, believe it or not. The, there was electric streetlights and some of the kind of higher class businesses and houses actually had electric power in, in the 1890s. So. Okay, so we have this town in dire straits. Dire that, straits. Know, it's got some good things going for it because there's industry here, but the people aren't getting along, and that's twinned with the f this these fires, which you know maybe that's just chance, but that was compounded. The the issue is compounded by the fact that no one had insurance. Yes, people were opening their wallets in churches in, in people, Saint yep. Louis. People were and people were donating. They then what happened? Um. So the resolution actually went to, they agreed to take it to the Privy Council, which at the time was the top court in England. 
um, the Queen's Privy Council, and this was during the absolute height of the British Empire. So it was the top court in the world, essentially, at that point. And um, Oliver Mowat, the Premier of Ontario, represented Ontario. And uh, a, a, a fellow named um, – I can't think of his first name, but his last name was Norquay um, – represented Manitoba. And then the, the feds sent a couple of lawyers over to sort of supporting Manitoba. And the, the entire transcription of the trial, you can, you can actually read online. It's about 400 pages and pretty dry, all things considered. But there are a few, a couple different points where the, the poor guy from Manitoba, he showed up with, uh, with a dossier, you know, a few hundred pages and was basically like, here's our evidence. And Oliver Mowat showed up with 14 cases of maps and documents and various signed items from geographers and I mean it's really amazing so he had this absolute overwhelming kind of mountain of evidence um, versus kind of this thin dossier that this poor guy from Manitoba showed up with and uh, the trial was actually it ended up being fairly quick um, Oliver Mowat had been to the Privy Council many many times before so he kind of knew the game um, he knew how to he knew how to play so and the uh, the final result was the Privy Council said that the border would be directly north of, of Lake Itasca, kind of in the, the spiritual idea of where the Treaty of Paris put it. And that's where the current border is now. So, And it wasn't recognized by the federal government until 1889, five years later. They were not happy about the decision. Hmm. But the Manitoba cops would have backed off at that point and there would have been some rest here. Yeah, at that point, they really didn't have a choice. Um, at that point, kind of by weight of the law of the British Empire, they were basically told, this is not Manitoba anymore, so you guys need to be Get it. out. Yeah. So when you read historical documents, like, for example, this 400 pages, did you, I don't know if you read the whole thing, maybe you skimmed some of it. But when you read the, these, the transcripts, do you feel, do you often feel like, wow, these, these folks were brilliant? Or do you kind of think like, oh man, we've come a long way in our thinking about how law should work and how people should get along? Kind of a little bit of both. Um, one of the things that really comes through very clearly to me is that even though the way that people talked and the expressions they used and the kind of different worldviews they had, they're a little bit different from what we have, but fundamentally they're still people and they're still um, had a lot of the same views towards, you know, wanting a better life for their kids or uh, wanting a stable home or wanting, wanting peace in the world or, you know, so a lot of the, a lot of kind of the basic kind of human things are very similar. Um, you can't really begrudge someone who is living in the 1880s for not knowing about something that happened after they died. So it's, it's, you kind of have to look at it through that lens as well. Um, but I'm always shocked that people are very, very similar to how they, to how they were in ways, kind of the basic sort of ways of, of living, I guess, the basic sort of ways of, of human nature. So it's just sort of a different, a different style or a different sheen or a different skin, I guess. I don't know, but yeah, people are very similar. And after the border was established where it is now to bring it back to the brewery stuff, sure. um, how long did the initial Lake the Woods Brewing Company run for? Cause there's three, right? Yeah. So the initial Lake of the Woods Brewing Company ran, uh, from 1898 till 1916. Um, in September 
1916, the uh, Ontario provincial government said that there would be prohibition. And that's what killed the first brewing company. Um, that's what, at that point, George Drury retired. He uh, said, you know what? I'm out. I'm good. It's funny. He actually, he ran uh, advertisements in the coming up to the date in September where he said, if you don't buy out my stock now, you'll have to buy it from Manitoba at much greater expense. So you may as well just buy it from me now. And it's actually pretty effective. He sold out most of his stock. Stockpile it. People were literally stockpiling. Absolutely. So <laughs> they stockpile all Georgia's supply and he retires. He actually ended up going to the south of France for most of the rest of his life. So he was doing pretty well. And um, it became Canada-wide prohibition in 1917. And like I said, that basically it knocked out many of the Canadian breweries. And um, in 1920, the Volstead Act, which is the 18th Amendment down in the States, made it legal down there. And that's when things kind of went the prohibition and the gangster kind of standpoint. Because both countries were then... Prohibiting alcohol. These were prohibiting alcohol, but Canada was doing a really interesting thing where there was a loophole where some breweries and especially distilleries, people making whiskey, Hiram Walker down Windsor and these guys, they could still produce alcohol, produce drinking alcohol for the export market. Um, there was a, there was a company a couple of years ago who ran a commercial that talked about, um, you know, they got shut down during prohibition and they have this commercial where people are flooding in like Elliot Ness and, you know, in there, you know, shutting them down. It's like, that's not how it went. They actually got shut down because they didn't pay their export taxes. Um, so really what happened is they got a letter one day and said, you're not allowed to export beer anymore because you didn't pay your taxes. Um, so it's considerably less exciting than the commercial show. But anyway, um, Canadian companies were still allowed to export. Weren't allowed to sell locally, but they could export. So that's what kept the few that did continue operating. Uh, that's what kept them operating. The brewery here was actually converted over to a soft drink plant where they started selling uh, soft drinks and specifically aerated water. So soda water, essentially. Fizzy water. Yeah, fizzy, fizzy water. Absolutely. For those who like bubbles in their mouth. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's what they converted their plant to. Now, around Prohibition in Kenora... As you mentioned, the popular story is El Capone and Whiskey Island and those urban legends, maybe. But you say that's not the true story and that the true story is even more interesting. So yeah. that was Kenora a part of Prohibition history in well, an interesting way. I knew, I knew it was, I knew it would come up because it always seems to. And so I decided to really take a good look into it. And I knew that the, um, kind of Winnipeg to, the Twin Cities was very much a, a very popular route for for grain and for various other things. Um, but we're sort of we're in the catchment area of of the Twin Cities, so the St. Paul specifically had a uh, not an official. They didn't have an official sort of uh, rule about this, but they called the O'Connor Rule, and the police chief, uh, Chief O'Connor, was or sorry O'Connell. He said, if you are a criminal, you could come into St. Paul, you could come in and register with the police and pay a small bribe to the policeman's retirement fund and agree to not commit any crimes within the borders of St. Paul. And then you could live there without having to worry about the police interfering with you. So you could go in and commit crimes in Minneapolis, or you could import liquor from Canada, or you could do all sorts of nefarious deeds. As long as you didn't commit crimes in St. Paul, you were good to go. 
So as a consequence, St. Paul became the mecca of illegal operations for a bunch of different criminal gangs. There was uh, a fellow named Kid Can who ran a mafia where he controlled half of St. Paul. Um, there was a, a guy named Tommy Banks. He actually ended up going to jail eventually when, when the FBI took down the corrupt St. Paul Police Department. Tommy Banks went down for importing alcohol from Canada. Uh, Kid Can, what he did, his gimmick was he would import raw drinking alcohol to his factory and under the guise that he was running a perfume factory. So he said, we need it for our perfume and for our aftershave. And uh, that's great. So they brought it in and then immediately bottled it and sent it to Al Capone in uh, in Chicago. So this was where a lot of the crime was going on. I mean, you look at guys like John Dillinger. John Dillinger used to live in St. Paul because he knew the police wouldn't mess with him. There was an apartment block in St. Paul. I've driven past it. It's still there. Regular looking apartment block. John Dillinger was living there. And the FBI came up and they're going to knock on his door and they ran into one of his guys in the hallway and the FBI and one of his and John Dillinger's gang member, they started blasting each other. John Dillinger cracks his door open with his Tommy gun, starts spraying in the hallway, told right, this is a straight up gunfight with the FBI. Um, it was a crazy city. There was a lot of crazy stuff going on in St. Paul. So that's kind of what what the Lake of the Woods area and sort of northern Minnesota and, and Winnipeg and sort of that's who the people who are living here would be dealing with. Um, they wouldn't be dealing with the, the gang from Chicago. They were, they were too far away, quite frankly. Um, and the intermediate in the Twin Cities was, uh, was largely who they'd be dealing with. And specifically, they'd be dealing with the Irish Mafia and, and Tommy Banks was the guy's name. And so do you know if there's any truth to the like smuggling whiskey through like the woods and stuff like that? I think there absolutely is. Um, I know of, there's a family in town who I'm not, I won't name them, but, uh, if you live in Kenora, you definitely know one of them, that um, the the great-great-grandfather of the town came here. He was a veteran of the Boer War, and he worked as a brakeman on the railway. And in his 10 years as a brakeman on the railway, he managed to purchase 14 houses and six islands on the lake and one of the nicest motorboats on the lake. Now, how does a brakeman afford 14 houses and six islands and one of the nicest boats in the lake. Well, he was running whiskey. So there was a lot of illegal stills on the lake. And whether people locally were drinking it, that's probably the case. There wasn't really – the guys down in the States were, were essentially running operations that were too large for us to sustain. We didn't have industrial facilities like in, in Gimli and, and, and other places. So the, uh, the local kind of whiskey runners were absolutely operating on the lake. And uh, they did quite a, quite a decent business for themselves. Um, during Prohibition, it was fairly common for uh, police raids on the lake to to shut down legal stills, and it was fairly common as well to uh, to shut down legal stills here in town. Actually, a lot of the laws that people were busted in Prohibition uh, are still in the books now. So if you have like a, a small still in your house, illegal. Get that out of there. You know, it's it's not good. So it's. Uh, yeah, it's really it's it's uh, it's an interesting thing. Well, sure. in Smuggler's Cove, people say like if sure. you went diving in Smuggler's Cove, you might find like an old barrel of whiskey or something that would be worth a fortune. I believe it. Yeah, it's um clearly the name comes from smuggling. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and same with Whiskey Island. The story with Whiskey Island is that um 
the idea is the Whiskey Island was exactly 10 miles from the railway. And so they operated a saloon slash bordello slash gambling ring on Whiskey Island, sort of just outside where the law could get them. Um, that's the story. Um, certainly possible. Certainly possible. I suspect if people were going to drink and visit the bordello and gamble, they would have just done it here in town. Um, there was enough places here in town that it would have been pretty available without having to go 10 miles out on the lake. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely possible. And I think it'd be really neat if people did find something on Smuggler's Cove. But, uh, honestly, the, I mean, we have a map, we have a map in Kenora of, of, uh, 1880, 1881. And there's, at the time, there was less than 500 people living there, and there's a bunch of different bars on the map. There's taverns. Um, there's one building that's just labeled Whorehouse. Um, it's, you know, it's pretty brazen. So the idea that they would kind of do it secretively out on the lake, uh, I don't really know about that. Yeah. I think so it was, what was out there then? That's a very good question. Um, I think there probably was gambling out there. It wouldn't surprise me. And I think maybe the reason why they would do that is to get away from prying eyes necessarily. So if you were just a scumbag and you wanted to go uh, do scumbag things in town, you would just do it. But if you were uh, someone who is maybe a little more respectable, you wouldn't necessarily want to uh, have people see you walking in and out of the tavern or uh, various other establishments. So you'd go out on the lake and that's maybe how you would hide what you were doing. That's one theory. Um, or, I mean, there's also just the idea that it's fun to go out on the lake and and hang out and, and cut loose. Exactly. Yeah. Right. You know, um, open a keg of whiskey, kind of the, the, the Mississippi, uh, casino style sort of, uh, sort of, uh, operation. So that's certainly possible too. After prohibition ended, the next brewery was in the mid 20th century, right? Yeah. So after, right after prohibition ended, they reopened, um, a brewery here in town. It was actually Stanley Drury, who is Edward's son, um, George's nephew, who he rebuilt a brewery beside, um, their water aeration factory, which they had built down in Lakeside a few years before. And, uh, 1927, they called it the Kenora, the Kenora Brewing Company. Okay. So not the mid. It was more. So right it was after prohibition. Yeah, it was right after prohibition. It was called the Kenora Brewing Company and they operated for a few years. And in 1930, I think it was 1930. Anyway, right around that area is when they changed the name back to the Lake of the Woods Brewing Company. And, um, shortly thereafter, it was, um, it was purchased by a fellow named Ernie Bentz and who, uh, was a, a brewer from Winnipeg and he operated it for the better part of 20 years through the thirties and the, the forties. Um, unfortunately it was, it was kind of during World War II where Bent's Brewing and the Lake Lewis Brewing Company sort of, um, kind of developed a bit of a bad reputation. There was rationing during the war and there was a lot of different supply issues. So they were basically brewing beer with whatever they could get their hands on. And sometimes it was really good and sometimes it was not the best. Uh, sometimes it was awful. So they had he, to be creative. They had to be creative. And as a consequence, they drove away a lot of their, a lot of their, um, a lot of their customer base. 
you know, there's a, there's apparently there's a, a, a saying at, uh, there was a tavern over in Kuwaitan where, uh, one of the bartenders would say kind of when they, when they ran out of, out of various other beers, they say, we're all out of beer. All we got left is Bents, um, <laughs> which is kind of a drag if you're any Bents, but you know, he was doing his best. And, uh, but it essentially it made it very difficult to turn a profit. Um, there was a couple different owners kind of in the, in the early fifties and then eventually one in the, in the, uh, 1952 was sent to the, the Yukon Brewing Company. And, uh, their plan was to brew North Star beer in Kenora and send it to the Yukon, hmm. which apparently it's, there wasn't a very good market for it because they shut down about 18 months later. So. And was that the last version of the Lake the Woods Brewing Company before the current version? That was. That was the last one until what, 2013, I guess? Yeah. So. It's interesting because, uh, my mom lived in Lakeside uh, in the 70s, and when she got her house there, she found Kenora Brewery bottles oh, yeah, in the sure. basement, and um, somehow the word got out about it, and she had a ton of people offering her like a lot of money really? for the bottles, because I guess it had become like a collector's item or something. Yes, sure. And... Um, they're in your collection now because she decided I should give these to the museum. She turned yeah. down the buyers and they're somewhere in your facility. They were on display. I think maybe they're in storage now. Sure. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's, it's actually a really popular thing. People looking out for the different kind of obscure beer labels and beer caps is another big mm-hmm. one. Um, the different bottle shapes and that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, like that's the thing. Breweries make all sorts of really interesting kind of graphic art and they make all sorts of really interesting kind of promotional items. And there's a big collector's market for it. And uh, we still get from time to time. I, I expect most of the inquiries go to to, uh, to the, uh, the brewery now, but um, we used to get a lot of inquiries about about the old Lake Woods Brewing Company and, and um, actually looking specifically for scans of labels. That was a big thing. So... All this stuff makes the past sound a lot more exciting than the present. You know, like here we are, <laughs> you know, like it used to be the wild west, lots of action. It, you know, of course we're, you, you romanticize it, but yeah. here we are, we're sitting in a room, you know, you guys are wearing collared shirts. I drove a Honda Civic here, like how dull, right? <laughs> sure. And we're in a, a society where our, our big problem is like the room is one degree too warm or too cold <laughs> and we need to get a new mattress because for some reason we can't sleep even though it's this, this perfectly engineered sleeping. Um, apparatus so these are sort of the, the problems that we talk about at the end of the day sure not some crazy gunfight that we we got in so when you imagine the the past do you and then you come back to the present do you kind of feel like oh it's kind of boring here a little bit but i think that's a good thing um if there was any time in history that i could choose to live i would choose to live right now um, and I wouldn't even think twice about it. There's, uh, when you look at especially right around the turn of the century and sort of early, early life in Kenora, it was dangerous, deadly work. There were people constantly being injured, blowing themselves up on the railway. There's people drowning on a regular basis. Um, it was a very dangerous, dirty time to be alive. Workplace safety, not much of a thing. It was not much of a thing <laughs> at all. Absolutely. That's the reason why they had the Public Works Act, why you couldn't, uh, sell booze uh, close to the railway because people were drinking and then handling TNT and handling nitroglycerin. And uh, that's not a good combination. No. Um, so uh, yeah, it's, it is not as exciting. Absolutely. Um, but 
just because you live in interesting times doesn't mean you live in good times. <laughs> okay, so every episode we have what we call the beer questions. Sure. Yeah, it's just a bunch of questions that are based off of the beers of the Lake of Woods Brewing Company. Okay. So there's a beer called the Big Timber. Have you ever had that one? I have. You know, when you cut down a really big tree, this makes a big impact compared to cutting down a tiny a tiny tree. Or what's a high impact decision that you made? Mm, a really high impact decision that I made is when I was um, in school at Western, I had an opportunity to work for a uh, museum in a place called Petrolia, the Oil Springs Museum. There's oil in Ontario, by the way. I didn't know that either. But there's a lot of oil down in Petrolia and down at Oil Springs. I had a chance to work down there, and instead I, I decided to work and do my cognate paper with the city of Hamilton um, with the War of 1812 commemoration. And um, that ended up going absolutely nowhere. Nowhere. The person who did work at Oil Springs still works at Oil Springs, and uh, I ended up getting a job in Kenora. So I would consider that to be a, a pretty big turning point for me. A lot of turning points in history seem like sort of accidents. You couldn't really have seen where it was going to lead. You were talking before about how you know we we you can trace it when you look back, but you have no idea where it's going to where it's going to lead. So it's, again, like you said, it's very easy to look back and be like, oh yeah, there's a straight line from here to here. But mm, yeah, I, uh, I think it's pretty chaotic. I don't think there's a, there's an ordered set of history. Like you're talking about Dan Carlin and his, I haven't heard all of his stuff, but the, uh, the one about World War One, yes, where he traces good. it back to this assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Franz Ferdinand. Yeah. And then there's this huge domino effect after that where he spends, you know, he spends literally like eight hours discussing yeah. the domino effect of this one person's action. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, that's something that people look at as, um, that's kind of more the spark. I think there's things that happen that are the spark. Um, I think there probably would have been a big war in the Balkans anyway. Um, you know, they were we got some articles at the, at the museum about people predicting that it would happen in 1912 and these sorts of things. But I think in history, there's a series of sparks that kind of, or uh, maybe catalysts we'll say that kind of get things moving. So it's not necessarily predetermined, but every once in a while, something will happen where um, a seemingly minor event will turn into something that's enormous. Okay. So you're always, pouring over historical documents and, and all this is part of the, the fantasy of a historian to stumble upon something huge. Like, Oh, this is going to be like, you, you get this like feeling like, Oh, this, this could be interesting. The thing that you're reading, maybe you can break the story on something. This is a, this is a question about the beer Sultana gold. Sure. Have you ever struck gold? <laughs> yeah. Um, Absolutely. hundred percent. That is the biggest dream of someone in my position. <laughs> Honestly, I've, I've thought about it quite a bit and it's the sort of thing where I think I've been a little bit disavowed from the notion. I, a lot of times when people bring in journals, a lot of people think like, oh yeah, journals will be full of salacious rumors of, of love and love lost and, and, you know, all sorts of really interesting things. Usually it's just people recording the weather. Um, usually it's, uh, you know, November 13, too cold to paint. <laughs> November 14, sunny today. And it says, you know, journals are not, they're it's not always the day awesome. To day. Yeah. It's very mundane for the most part. For people who are dedicated enough to keep a journal, usually it's farmers and usually they're recording the weather, which is like, oof. So every once in a while, when you do find something that's like really 
kind of like, oh, wow, that's really amazing. Um, I'm trying to think of a time where we really found something that's really, uh, really shocking. Um, <laughs> we've got a journal of a poor guy. Um, he lived out on the lake and he was a bit kind of odd and he, he had a market garden out there and he has a, a, a journal entry for December 25th. And the journal entry is went to town, no one around, not sure why. And I was just like, Oh man, <laughs> what a drag. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, just, it's stuff like that. Like it's, um, usually the, the big, um, kind of exciting things that we do find are, are related to when other people come in with genealogical requests. Like there was someone who came in from Texas last summer and they said, you know, my, my great grandpa used to live here. You know, do you have anything about him? It's like, yeah, he used to be the mayor. Not just that. Here's a picture of him. Not just that. Here's all the things that he did. Not just that. Here's a picture of his store. And it's like, here's all this stuff. And these people were like, this is amazing. <laughs> and they were like texting their friends and their family and everything and sending pictures back to Texas. And so that's pretty cool. So that, that's the sort of thing that that's always really fun. When someone comes in and they're like, hey, do you know anything about this guy? It's like, actually, I know a lot. So let's sit down and let's let's talk about this. So that's that's always fun. So those are pretty rewarding. Another one of their um, seasonal beers is Sasquatch. Have you ever seen something that maybe was hard for other people to believe? Yeah. Uh, the one thing I can think of for sure, a friend of mine, a couple friends, I should say, two friends, were getting married in Reddit a few years ago. And there was a big, big party and late, late into the night and, um, a couple of friends, um, got their, their friend's kid to come pick them up. So I said, Hey, can I get a ride with you guys? Yeah, sure. So it was about four o'clock in the morning. We were driving home from Reddit, just peeling down the Reddit highway. And it was kind of this weird, misty sort of, sort of ethereal kind of, Oh man, this is, this is really interesting. And we come around a corner and there is a wolf and a bear standing in the ditch as if they're talking to each other as if they're like speaking and there was no kind of carcass or anything there. It's as if they're just kind of hanging out kind of in the ditch, just, just kind of being there. And we drove past and nobody said anything. And my one friend said, uh, did everyone just see that? Um, did everyone just see a bear and a wolf? And it was like, yeah, I know, right? So we just lost our minds. Like, what's going on? This bear and this wolf hanging out at four in the morning on the Reddit road. And yeah, that's, that's the, so we've told people since then. And they're like, I don't know if that's a thing. You guys were drinking and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> it's like, no, no, we saw that bear and we saw that wolf. And anyway. they were just having a meeting about what to do with the humans. I guess, I guess they're <laughs> just having a little, a little sit down and uh, maybe they're pals. I don't know. Bear and wolf pals. That'd be kind of frightening actually. Braden, thank you so much for coming on Lake Time, for taking the time to tell these stories that I'm sure you tell every day <laughs> as a part of your job. But sure. not all of us get to hear them. And maybe if people want to hear more about Kenora's history, where do you recommend they go? Well, you can come see me at the Lake of the Woods Museum at 300 Main Street South. Uh, we're open Tuesday to Friday during the year and every day of the week in the summer. Also, be tuned in for our Art Center opening on August 17th this summer. Um, it's going to be a big do, um, and it's going to be uh, it's going to be great. So come see us then, and come see us at the museum. Thanks, Brandon. Yeah, great. It's interesting how 
when you learn about the history of something, you actually like it in its present form more. So it's like companies are always trying to do this. They'll tell you their origin story so you like them better. You hear about Sam Walton from Walmart and how you know, it was this quaint general store and it grew into this big thing. And it makes it, you, you like it better, right? Just hearing about that origin story. Or all those pictures of Walt Disney, like hand-drawing cartoons in his garage and Continuing stuff Continuing like the that. theme of, of companies that have Walt in the... Yes. In the t- <laughs> Uh, But anyway, it just definitely makes me feel more connected to this place after listening to that. Thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you. Please stay tuned for our next episode because uh, you, the fans, will keep this podcast alive. And now the sun has set on another episode of Lake Time. Thanks for listening.